How do you make business problems disappear? Wrap them in bacon. For business owners, marketing execs, and anyone trying to grow your business, pump your profits, and make more while doing less, welcome to Bacon Wrapped Business with Brad Costanzo. Sizzling hot business advice guaranteed to make you fat. Profits? Every week our chefs will serve you proven recipes for ramping up your revenue. Now here's your host, Brad Costanzo. Welcome back to Bacon Wrap Business. This is Brad, and I am very excited to have today's guest on the show. It is going to fit into a theme that you guys, at least my loyal listeners, have heard me talking a lot about lately, which has to do with buying, selling businesses, increasing valuations, and looking at this in a completely different perspective than what you know, you might typically be hearing about, which is, you know, start a business, grow a business, make more sales, etc. And one of the reasons I'm really excited today is because I've been a fan of this author and this expert's uh, work for years now. When I first read his book, uh, his name is John Werlow. I first read his book, Built to Sell. I don't even remember when. I know it was a few years ago, and it was such a refreshing read. And the way the way it was written and some of the key takeaways in it were these really forehead slapping epiphany moments. That like, yeah, this this is a completely different way to look at running a business. And it was all about, in essence, a parable of telling the story of a person who ran a, a business, in this case, I believe it was a marketing agency, and how they were doing a little bit of everything and completely owned by their business and realized that there was really no escape unless they kind of got their stuff right and created the business in a way that they could exit it if they wanted to. Um, buying and selling businesses is something I've done to a degree in my own business. As if you're a listener to the show, you'll hear me talking about it. I've sold businesses, I've purchased them, I'm looking to purchase more. And there are a lot of different aspects that make this a, a really amazing way to to do business, but it's also fraught with you know complexities that a lot of people aren't shedding the light on. Today, John Werlow is here with us to shed the light on some of this. He's also the author of an amazing book that I recommend everybody get called The Automatic Customer, which is really about how to build continuity as subscription-based recurring revenue into your business, which is really a key driver for increasing uh, the valuation. I don't know exactly where today's conversation is going to go, but I am really thrilled to have John on the show and let you eavesdrop on a conversation that I've wanted to have for a long time. So without any hesitation, John, welcome to Bacon Wrap Business. Hey, thanks, Brad. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, it's it's kind of cool because I've, uh, I've I've read a lot of your stuff, and I think that uh, what you've done for business owners is really give them a new perspective on kind of how to look at their business. But where would, where do I want to start on this? So tell us, tell me a little bit, or tell the listeners, I guess I should say, you've got a couple of books, you've got your value builder system, you've got, you, you help entrepreneurs and or business owners sell their business, but how would you describe the core of your primary business and how you're serving business owners right now? Yeah, I mean, our, our vision as a company is to level the playing field for business owners as they approach their exit. So the idea is, you know, right now, a lot of business owners start their business, they grow, and, and they get to the end of the line and decide, to sell it, and on the other side of the the sort of negotiation table, um, they're faced with a really tough negotiator. It's either a, you know corporate buyer, oftentimes it's a private equity guy, and these are guys that went to Stanford and Harvard. Yeah. 
yeah, Wharton <laughs> and, and, and know every trick in the book. And, and they use that, you know, manipulation, financial engineering, uh, underhanded, frankly, tactics to take advantage of business owners as they sell their life's work. And I, I, you know, we all at, at value builders think that's wrong. We just think that, um, you know, if you build something that's making an impact on the world, you should be paid for it. And so that's what we're trying to fix. We're, we're trying to make sure that entrepreneurs get a fair price when they go to sell their company. I love that. And as I said, I've been on both sides of this. And I've been on the side with the very first business I sold. I was actually, I got to admit, I was kind of running it into the ground. And I was a distressed seller. And I didn't know how I was going to turn it around. I had my focus was fixed elsewhere. And there was a whole bunch of stuff that I really didn't even know that I didn't know. And I had a relatively sophisticated investor coming by. He wasn't just somebody who wanted to buy my business. He was looking for people in my situation. And uh, I got a really, I know I sold it for less than I could have and had I, had I known some other things, but I got a, I got a, I guess a hard one lesson in kind of the do's and don'ts. And I made a lot of notes like, man, the next business I do, I'm going to have these things in place before I ever go take this shopping to a broker, which is exactly what I did. I just had my business. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take this to a business broker and see what they can do with it. So do you find that that's one of the most common paths that business owners who kind of reach that point of going, ah, I think I just, I, I need to escape this. I need to get out of this or I want to sell it. Um, do you think they, the, their very first thought is go to a business broker? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, we do a lot of work with M&A professionals and business brokers because we license our system to them. And, and, the, and the flip side of the coin, their biggest frustration is entrepreneurs doing exactly what you did. Right. It's coming to them when they're exhausted and they're, they're kind of done and they just want out. And they're like, here are the keys. Sell this thing. You know, give me the check by Friday because I'm done. And that, of course, is 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 really tough for uh, a broker or an intermediary an M&A professional to deal with um, you know it's it's a long it takes a long time to sell a company if you think about it it's way more sophisticated than a house um, there's a lot of work you, you generally do before you put a house on the market you you know you fix all the leaking roof and the <laughs> leaking faucets and you make it look pretty like there's a lot of work that you need to do to put a business uh, into shape to get it to sell. Um, and then there's the process of marketing the business. It's one of those very inefficient, you know, uh, you know, Google AdWords is a very efficient market, right? You bid and it's in real time and you can get, you know, words are, are, are bid on to exactly what the market is willing to pay for them. Um, businesses are not the same way. It's a very opaque marketplace. There is no, uh, you know, true marketplace for businesses. And so as a result, it takes a long time for a, a broker and a professional to find the right buyers, to socialize the idea with them, to show them the kind of idea, the book. Uh, it's, it's, just a very kludgy, very opaque market. So the worst thing, you know, one recipe for making sure you, you get really screwed when you sell your company <laughs> is to not do any of the, any of the kind of pre-work and then just sort of hand the keys over to a broker at the end and say, you know, you know, get me the most you can for it now. Cause it's really tough at that point. Right. Well, and as somebody who has looked at businesses and purchased businesses to buy, um, the, uh, you know, the side, everybody's trying to do what's in their best interest. So if I smell somebody who just doesn't have their stuff together and who hasn't, you know, doesn't have systems documented, SOPs, doesn't have their, you know, it just, it's really disorganized. I'm taking 
a lot of money off the table for the valuation of that. Uh, and I'm docking them, you know, for a lot of things. So I'm looking at it on both sides and as anybody would. And I'm not even a sophisticated M&A guy, right? I, I know just enough to kind of do some negotiation points. And that's what I learned the hard way when I went through with my sale is that, um, and also how they, as you know, you're very familiar with this, but the way that the initial conversation starts off is almost never the way it ends when it's at the closing table because people are looking for all those little points to just get you down, down, down based upon all the stuff you probably haven't done. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's um, it's absolutely right. So so you want to go into it. I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity, not that I would ever advocate for it, but there's a huge opportunity for people to buy businesses uh, at, at deep discounts for exactly the same reasons that you share, right? right. There are business owners doing this. Uh, that's not what we do. We're, 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 we work the other side of the equation. It's just, it's just to help business owners make sure they maximize the value of their company. But, um, uh, but yeah, you're right. It, you know, one of the classic things, one of the classic ways that we see deals go, uh, tilt back in the direction of, in favor of the buyer, um, is the buyer will will sort of say they'll throw out a number like I want to buy your business for let's say two million dollars right mm-hmm. and and the and the business owner will say wow that's amazing two million it was fantastic right and then of course the devil's always in the details <laughs> one one of the classic you know things you got to look for is what's the downstroke the downstroke is sort of M and A parlance for what's the minimum amount of money that you as the owner is going to get out of this deal uh, when all is said and done so yeah. your downstroke if 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 the M and A guy says you know uh, or if the the buyer says we're going to pay you two million dollars for the business the downstroke is is the guaranteed portion and and that might be. 500,000, it might be 800,000, it might be a million two, depending on, again, how well you structured your business, but you can guarantee it's not 2 million. Um, because the other piece uh, is usually an earnout or some form of sort of payment in the future based on um, what's possible. In a small business, it's often what they call a vendor take back, which is a essentially you as the seller of the company is partially financing the buyer to buy your business. So they write you a check um, for part of your business, but then basically they're borrowing and paying the rest of it uh, over time. And, well, uh, and usually you get a small coupon for that. Well, that's it. And that's, it sounds like one that I, I almost purchased this business. It was an e-commerce business um, last year to where, um, they're, you know, they're doing about th- between three and four million dollars and they, it was distressed, right? They, they, he wanted out and I was, uh, you know, my offer to him was I'll buy, well, the initial, I'll buy 80% of your business because I kind of want you around to still operate a lot of the piece, but I'll give you some liquidity and I'll give you some certainty. But I said, I, it started off, I'll t- give me 100% owner financing. So I'll do a, uh, let's just call it a million dollars to make it easy over the next three years. And I'm just going to take that out of your cash flow and just make sure I'm guaranteeing it to you with no risk to me. For a while there, he said yes. And I was pretty happy about that. Um, we went up to like 10% down, 90% owner financing, where I was going to be pulling, you know, sending him checks from his revenue primarily in order to cover the note payments. And um, it was 100% because there was he was distressed. He didn't have an exact uh, plan or things in place that helped to uh, add value to it, right? Like th- I knew if I took over this thing, there was going to be a hell of a lot of work that I was going to have to do because I, he didn't really do the necessary pre-work 
to to build up his valuation. You got it. And so, so we're all about trying to intercept business owners, uh, which is why I wanted to do your show, by the way, <laughs> um, intercept business owners well before they get distressed, right? When they're still running their companies, uh, happily in many cases running, maybe they've got an inkling that, yeah, maybe in the next five or 10 years I might sell. Uh, that's the perfect time to start thinking about how do you structure your business so that it will be attractive to an acquirer. Cause a lot of us, you know, a lot of us entrepreneurs, we, we use like the, the profit and loss statement as our report card at the end of the year, right? Mm -hmm. How'd I do this year? It's top line, bottom line. And that's fine. Um, but I think using another document is equally, if not more important, which is the valuation statement of the beer. Like ha have you grown the value of your company? Um, yeah, because if you, all you're thinking about is profitability, uh, you as the owner would probably do all the selling because you don't have to hire a salesperson um, yeah. because you're probably more passionate. You probably get better margins. You can do more selling. Like you do that at the same time, the more you personally do the selling, the less valuable your business will be to acquire. This is dependent upon you. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes uh, the irony is what makes you more valuable may make you less profitable in the short term. Right. And so by using both, they, they both numbers oftentimes compete with each other and, and they sort of offset one. They, they, they provide some tension, which is good. Uh, you know, so if all you're looking at is how much profit did we make, how much profit did we make, um, it's not the whole story. And you may get to a point where, where you built a business that's so centrally dependent on you that you, you could never sell it. And most of us as entrepreneurs, um, well, I shouldn't say most, many, many entrepreneurs, um, w would like to think they're building value that all their sort of hard work, um, is, uh, is going to get sort of compensated down the road at some point. Right. Well, and it's in the values in the eyes of the beholder, right? So your value to somebody who wants to buy you purely from a financial perspective because you're a cash cow and they just want to buy it and, you know, just get a good return on their cash is totally different than a strategic buyer who's going to come in because you, the things that you've done will be very valuable to kind of their current existing businesses. And yeah, you, realizing where, you know, should I sell it to a financial buyer? Or should I sell it to a strategic buyer is a, is a big decision. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The motivations are very different. I think you, you've done a great job of articulating the financial buyer. They they basically say, okay, I could, you know, I put my my money in the bank and get nothing. I could put my money in a, you know, diversified stock portfolio. You know, over the long run, maybe I'll get seven or eight points. Uh, or I could buy this business and hope to get, you know, 12, 15, 20% return if, you know, over time. Um, that's a financial buyer and and they're looking at the predictability of your future profits They're trying to understand how Reliable is this company going to predictably generate cash into the future? Right. So the more you can de-risk it for them the higher the multiple they're gonna pay for your business You're absolutely right. The strategic is is actually doing some very different math. They're trying to say Okay, what's this thing worth in our hands? I'll give you an example. So uh, do you know Stephanie Breedlove? Okay, so she uh, she's a great entrepreneur. She's written a book recently. I can't remember the name of the book, but it's probably worth picking up. Stephanie Breedlove, um, uh, she was an, an Anderson consultant, so you know the precursor okay. to to uh, Accenture. Accenture yeah. 
she has a kid. She's an accountant. She says, okay, I'm going to hire a nanny, but we want to do it above board. We don't want to pay them cash. So we're going to go get a payroll company to do the, the payroll. So she calls up ADP and they give her like a terrible experience. They give her the runaround. She, they transfer her call to like five different people. And Breedlove, after like the fifth transfer of her call, she kind of dawns on her that they don't want her business because all she's doing is trying to you know pay a nanny, right? Because ADP thrives on you know, you know doing oh, yeah, payroll yeah, for yeah, totally. you know, General Motors and Walgreens or whatever. So she goes, well, what if I started a company that just does payroll for parents who want to pay a nanny? <laughs> so that's what she does. She starts this company called Breed Love and Associates. She has another kid. They build the business. 25 years later, so it's not a hyper growth company. 25 years later, um, her business is generating, if my memory serves, $9 million in top line revenue. So, you know, good business, but like not knocking the you know, sure. light, lights off, right? She sells it for $54 million, $54 million, six times top line revenue. Like it's, it's such a laughable number that it's almost unfathomable, yeah. right? Like, like six times top profit. Line. We, yeah, yeah, six times profit would be a great outcome, right, for any entrepreneur. She's selling it for six times top line. How does she do that? Well, she sold it to a strategic. Here's what she did. She goes to um, a company called Care.com, which is a venture-backed uh, website similar to Angie's List. You know Angie's List yeah. where you can find a plumber or whatever. Uh, Care.com is the Angie's List of caregivers. So if you're in Toledo, Ohio, and you need a, a child babysitter for your kid, you can go in, enter your zip code, and it will give you a list of rated uh, child care providers in Toledo, Ohio. Well, at the time of the Breedlove and Associates, which is the name of Stephanie's company acquisition, Breedlove had 10,000 customers. Care.com had 70, uh, excuse me, 7 million subscribers, 7 million subscribers. Hmm. So they reasoned and Stephanie argued that if they just sold 1% of the 7 million or 70,000 customers her payroll service, that would that would increase the size of the Breedlove revenue by 700% overnight. Right? Because they've got 7 million subscribers. So if they can just literally cross sell the Breedlove payroll service to 1% of those customers, that business is worth seven times more overnight. Wow. If they sold 2%, it's 14 times bigger. If they sold 10%, you get you get the math, right? And so care.com saying, you know, yeah, it's a big multiple. We got to pay for Breedlove's company, but it, it still works out for us in the end if, if we're successful cross-selling her service. So that's a strategic acquisition. Very different than, you know, how predictable is this business going to generate profits for the next 10 years? What, um, what are you yeah. seeing when you're, when you're looking at, you know, I mean, you advise a lot of companies and talk to a lot of business owners who uh, do this. Are you seeing kind of like um, more people selling to strategic buyers or more more of them selling to financial buyers? Or I guess I guess the third one, and there may be more than I haven't really thought deeply about this. There's the strategic buyer who's already got something that this plays really well into. The financial buyer who just kind of wants a cash cow, and I guess the the other one is somebody who just wants, in essence. They want to do something. They want to get out of their job. They want to stop being a doctor. They want to go start a new business yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the, what do you see yeah, the, kind of mostly? 
Yeah, they want to, you know, they want a job or yeah. they want to own a business. Yeah, absolutely right. So it's very dependent on the size of the company. So for a business that's say less than a million dollars in annual sales, it's almost always the latter, right? Yeah. It's almost always the individual who wants a job. Essentially, they they've left the corporate world. They're not totally comfortable starting a business for themselves, but they've got a little cash, and so they want to buy a business. That's very small companies, generally sub one million. In the one to ten million space, in, in terms of one to ten million, in terms of revenue, um, you, you you do see some individuals, but that's starting to get a little rich for an individual. Right. So you start to see more financial buyers. The the threshold that most private equity companies will use, and a private equity company would be the 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 quintessential sort of financial buyer mm -hmm. a private equity company will usually use i mean they all range but a million dollars in ebitda is a pretty good uh cutoff rate to to attract private equity so if you've got a million dollars in ebitda uh pre-tax profit um to use a lay lay term you're, you're you're likely to be able to achieve or attract a lot of private equity at that mm -hmm. point private equity or financial buyer. So if you're a $5 million business with 20% margins, you're gonna be able to contract private equity. If you're a $10 million business with 10% margins, et cetera, you can contract private equity. Once the business is up more like, um, uh, you know, north of 10 million certainly, but but even north of you know, 20 or 30 million, that's when strategics start to play a little bit more. Most strategics really don't buy a lot of very small companies, sub 10 million. Um, they're they're much more likely to be looking at, at larger businesses. Private equity companies, their game is they you know they buy a company for a low multiple. Uh, they might you know jam a couple of companies together that are similar that there's some synergies between, and they'll they'll try to go off and sell off the combined entities uh, for a better multiple to a strategic down the road. That's sure. you know base game they play. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. The um, I'm looking at a handful of the questions that I've got here. So. When you are when you are prepping to sell, and I, I think I've read about or you know seen you talk about some of these points, but you know what do you do to get the most amount of, of viable offers? Like what can you do besides just taking it to a broker? Besides just going out there and cold calling yourself? What what can a business owner do? Let's say that they've gone, you know they they've they've taken they've paused in their business, they've done the work, they've started to deploy some of the uh, value building levers that you show them, you know, what to do. And let's just say that after that homework's done, it's time to take this to market. What can they do to increase the number of offers they get? Go to the industry trade show. Okay. You know, okay. that's probably, you know, that's probably the, the very best thing to do. Walk if, the halls or set yeah, up? Or? No, don't set up. I mean, look, be a, be an active member of your industry. If, if that means exhibiting, fine, exhibit. Right. But if it means get, you know, getting, a, you know, getting the award for the, you know, the, the, the most exciting new company or the Lifetime Achievement Award in that industry, regardless, you, you want to walk you know, you want to make connections and aggressively network in, in at the industry because most of the big industry players will be going to the industry event with a view of what are the companies we should acquire. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the hats they wear. 
Um, so that's going to be a, a chance to kind of connect with all, you know, many of the players in the space. And, and you don't have to be as, as desperately painful about it as, you know, would you like to acquire our business? Obviously you, you would, you know, you'd have a good open on any conversation. Uh, Hey, we should, you know, we should find a way to work together. Uh, you know, we like, I'd love to love to sit down and talk about if there's some way we could partner together. And those are all, uh, you know, industry code words for acquisition, but you Absolutely. don't have to say you're, you know, you you want to be acquired. You can say, hey, we should, you know, we should look at a way to, to do something, uh, partner together, see if there's some synergies between the two companies, blah blah blah. Right. So is that, a, and that sounds like a pretty good way to start to attract strategic buyers, and yeah, obviously talk to the people who are already in your industry. Are there any other ways that that you recommend people, you know, attract the strategic buyers or high net worth investors? Yeah, list. I mean, in particular, strategic buyers. Um, look at your current partners, and and that's what Breedlove did, by the way. Stephanie Breedlove, they had a relatively junior relationship at Care.com. Stephanie Breedlove, the CEO of Breedlove and founder, was working with a marketing manager at Care.com on a on a joint uh, sort of uh, content play. Like in other words, Breedlove was pl- supplying some content, some articles to care.com but I mean it was a very you wouldn't have thought of it as a strategic relationship it was a it was a very tactical sort of mm-hmm. relationship but that was enough to, for Breedlove to to basically go to the CEO of uh, care.com and say look you know we've got this junior partnership you know we're supplying but there's got to be more we can do together yep so get so the foot in the door get that relationship yeah, yeah. Uh, ability to talk beforehand add value to each other and then see what can be done yeah, there. And even if it's at a relatively junior level, that's fine. It'll allow the CEO to go to the junior person and say, hey, tell me about what we're doing with these guys. Tell me more about them. What's she like? Is she legit? Is she, you know, is she credible? Or should I, you know, and then that's all you need is to start a conversation. So I would look down my list of partners. Who else do we partner with? Uh, and, and, and see if you can kind of go upstream because probably your partnership is, is with someone not the CEO, but but it, you know, for strategic sort of acquisition, it's likely to be initiated first and foremost by either the CEO or a division president, mm-hmm. if it's a, if it's a large company, or a corporate development executive. So like like Google, as an example, has a head of corporate development. A division of Google um, would certainly have you know a president that would that would we'd be on the lookout for acquisitions. And of course, the CEO of Google would be looking at for massive acquisitions, but not the kind of stuff we're talking about. Right. Of all the, there's a lot of value levers, I guess, you know, call it that people can do in order to, you know, during that time period when they decide, I might want to sell this, and I want to increase my valuation of the business. And uh, I mean, maybe there's a you've identified kind of a finite number, I know there's a million things that people can do, such as making sure, you know, maybe one of the driest but most important things is make sure you've got standard operating procedures and you know a documentation of all the things you do so when somebody comes to buy it they know they're not getting a hodgepodge mess of uh, stuff that they have to do but of all the various value levers that somebody like a business owner can typically put in place when they're trying to increase their valuation and make themselves more attractive what do you think are maybe like two or three of the most effective ones that are universally applicable that business owners should really kind of ask myself, do I have this and, and or is this something I can add in order to help me out? 
Yeah, so so we talk about eight key drivers of company value. When you get your value better score, we, okay. we get basically rate you on these eight factors. So one of the eight factors that that is heavily weighted in our algorithm because it's correlated to getting offered a premium is what we call the monopoly control. And essentially what it means is how well differentiated is your product and service. So if you are if you have something truly unique that you have a virtual monopoly on, you would score very high on the monopoly control. Control. If, by contrast, you're selling a commodity, uh, you know you're responding to RFPs, uh, you're you're selling your product based on time or you know by the yard, by the ounce, by the pound. That's the opposite of monopoly control. That's when you're going to get the least price for your your least value for your business. Right. So w- what you're trying to do is find something and create something where where it's really truly unique. And and the reason that it has nothing to do with marketing, by the way, the reason it has an element to marketing, but the reason that acquirers are looking for businesses that have a high degree of differentiation is because when an acquirer looks at your company, before they even express any interest, before you even know they're looking at you, they're looking at you externally and saying, can should we compete with these guys or should we is it just gonna be cheaper for us to buy them absolutely that's one of the things i think about if i'm looking at something to say well if i spent that money or a lot less could i could i compete with them just by entering the market myself because there's no barriers to entry there's no moat there's no monopoly around them okay but now that also sounds like for a majority of business owners maybe one of the harder ones to like if you don't have any demonstrable monopolistic moat that protects yourself from that, how can somebody develop, and this is a really loaded question because I know it all depends on the type of business and the industry, et cetera, but have there, are there any kind of anecdotal stories that you can think of off the top of your head, put on the spot, of a company that kind of didn't have one and was able to, to create one in kind relatively made- short order? Kind of manufacture one. Sure. Yeah. When you think about monopoly control, there are two ways you can create monopoly control. Number one, you can build a better mousetrap. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and a lot of business owners, to your point, don't have the luxury of a better mousetrap. They, their product is a parody product. It is, it is not a better product. Essentially, mm-hmm. it is the same product as, the, as their competitors. Especially so if you're one, offering a service, right? It's yeah. Like, oh, you do taxes. Yeah, like I'm a I window cleaner. You do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm an SEO guy. Well, so there's 10,000 other SEO guys on Upwork. Like, yeah. they, like you're not differentiated. So, so number one, you can create a monopoly control, do something better. Most people don't have that luxury. What If you don't have that luxury, you've got to manufacture the appearance of monopoly control through better marketing. Mm-hmm. And so really, this comes down to how well have you given the appearance of differentiation, whether you're different or not. I mean, if you go, if you look at, um, I mean, I'm, I, I ride, uh, ride uh, bicycles, like mountain bikes, road bikes, whatever. Um, you know, there's uh, dozens of different brands of bikes out there, and they've all got loyalists, loyal customers, et cetera. They're all manufactured in two factories in China. Um, Nike shirts, as an example. You know, I would I would challenge you to pick up a Nike dry fit shirt and compare it to a you know a another no name brand shirt are mm-hmm. uh, you know athletic knit shirt arguably uh it would be difficult to tell the difference but one's got the nike logo the other doesn't Branding, so yeah. yeah it's it's really comes down to how do you create a brand now if you it obviously if you have a product uh you sell 
uh, beer. You're you're uh, uh, you're a you're a manufacturer of uh, new guacamole. You, yeah. You've got something people can touch. Get it. You can brand it. If you have a service, what you've got to do is productize your service. Um, service companies are renowned for genericizing their service. So they say, I'm a, I'm an accountant. Well, that's great. There's another 500,000 accountants in America. Well, how am I going to differentiate you from the other guys? Instead, you do what a guy named Darren Root has done, who's also an accountant. He set up something called Rootworks. And, um, um, it's it provides a unique accounting service a back it's actually rootworks is a is an organization the the brand that he offers is something called um, boss back office support system and so the boss system is a bookkeeping offering it's a it's a it's essentially accounting services but he's branded it better mm-hmm. so if, if you're the world's greatest seo guy don't hold your shingle out there and say i do seo cuz then you're just being you know basically encouraging inviting people to compete with you on price say you know, I've got the seven-step proprietary process to maximize your position on Google, or I've got the exactly. This is what I help. One of the things I help my clients do is kind of come up with that big idea that makes that makes people that differentiates yourself and makes them go, oh, like, oh, okay, that's what you do. And even if it's exactly the same as somebody else, kind of the appearance that it's different um, can make a big, big, big difference in people's minds. <laughs> You bet. You bet. And, and I mean, um, getting, getting, getting really good at, at branding, productizing would also include, you know, trademarking the name, mm-hmm. coming up with the delivery steps underneath it. So if you've got the five step SEO system, you know, have each of the five steps consistently merchandise every time, you know, when you go, don't respond to requests for proposal yeah. and say, yeah, I can do an SEO. You politely decline and say, well, you know, we offer the five step, you know, and no one else does that. So if you're interested in that, let me know, but I'm not responding to your RFP. There you go. No, so, I love that. That kind of stuff. Super powerful. What do you think? Look, I, I want to flip the script and kind of go back to something we were talking about before. Um, <laughs> this makes me think of like one of my favorite little mental thinking strategies I took from Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's um, partner called inversion, which is like if there's something you want, like invert what you want into kind of what you like, look at the opposite side of, you know, what you don't want and always look at it from two different angles. So I actually want to explore this partly for selfish reasons, but partly as a, as a learning opportunity for people, um, which is what do you think are some of the biggest opportunities for buyers based on what you're seeing with, you know, with sellers? And I don't mean like, how do you take advantage of them? But what I mean is where do you, when you see you know, if you were to if you were to step away from just saying I'm going to help uh, sellers really get um, you know get the highest and most for them, for the other side, the people who are trying to buy them, where do, like do you see any really good opportunities for them? Such, and I'll give you one example, uh, and this kind of ties in with your whole automatic customer thing, which is I when I'm looking for businesses to buy, I'm looking to see do they maybe not have a recurring revenue thing in place and if they don't is there something i can do to put that in place and and are are there any opportunities there for that buyers should look at because you've got a really unique perspective you see what's going on with the sellers 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's funny you should mention recurring revenue because I think that's where the majority of the opportunities are right now. They are traditional transactional industries, businesses and yep. in transactional industries that are ripe to be converted into subscription offerings. Um, uh, and just to give you a sense, before I give you an example, mm-hmm. just to give you a sense of, of the delta, the difference between you know, a tr- transactional model and a subscription model um, in terms of valuation. So if you look at security companies right now, so these are the guy, like home and office security companies, they have two forms of revenue, right? They have installation revenue, which would be considered transactional, like one-off, mm-hmm. versus recurring, uh, which they call monitoring revenue. Yeah. Right now, an acquirer will pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue, and $2 for every dollar of recurring revenue. Wow. So on a dollar for dollar basis, the recurring revenue is worth almost three times that of the transaction revenue. So if you buy the business, uh, you know, if you buy a transactional business and you convert it into a recurring revenue business, you're making huge strides in making that company more valuable. Like yeah. you're, you're doubling and tripling the value of your of, of the business um, as a result. So, so that's just what's at stake here. I'll give you an example. Um, car washes. So right now, car washes in the United States are generally uh, transactional businesses, right? So you go in, you pay your, you buy your gas and you say that you, you want a car wash today and you say, sure. And you buy a car wash. Well, increasingly car washes have realized that there is a much better business model in creating a subscription business for unlimited car washes. So today, some of the savvy private equity groups and many of the big car wash organizations, I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about organizations are going around buying up crappy uh, you know, car washes for very low multiples, converting them into recurring revenue businesses, um, and and making out like bandits as a result. Um, Constellation Software is was, another example. Oh my god, Go I was ahead. just going to mention them. By the way, I just discovered them recently. An investment banker was telling me to look at them and say, like, look at their model. But keep going. Yeah, yeah. Constellation Software is a great example. So they are they have a reputation for buying. Um, on-prem, essentially what on-prem is, is technology jargon for um, software that is purchased on a one-time transactional model. Yeah, and like installed uh, on your computer. It's not exactly. a software as a service. Yeah, think about the way we used to buy Office from Microsoft. You go to Staples, yeah. you buy the CDs, you load them up. That's that's basically, so there are still software companies, if you can believe it, that are out there um, that, that operate on that business model. So Constellation buys those companies converts them into SaaS businesses and in so doing, you know, adds turns and turns and turns and turns to their multiple. A turn, by the way, is like if you're if you're trading at four times EBITDA and you you increase your value to five times EBITDA, that's a that's one turn. Um, so Constellation is a publicly traded company. You look them up on the on the. And they're buying exchange. really small companies too. I mean, they're buying one to five million. So, I mean, they're sometimes they're buying big companies, but they're they're going after small ones as well. These industry yep. stalwarts that are boring as all get out, and they are yeah, they're using the cash flow from there, and they're funding the development as a SaaS and turn it into recurring. I I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um- yeah, again, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan, you know, because again, what, what we're trying, trying to, to do side, right? yeah. is is help the the software company that that is using the the old transaction model and trying to say before you go sell to one of these sharks, yeah. uh, let you know make these changes. Do this, so, do this yourself and get yeah. you know ten times what you're going to get prior to yeah. 
But that's why, as I said, I wanted to kind of hear the other angle of it because you have that really uh, unique perspective is working with all of the, you know, all of the sellers. So you kind of see the the things they're doing right. You see the things they're doing, you know, that they're doing wrong. Um, Are you noticing that because of demographics, you know, the baby, you know, there's a lot of business owners who are baby boomers and the baby boomer is that this aging population that is, you know, they're 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 reti- they're starting to retire in mass if they can. You know, with this economy, but the um, are you starting to see a lot more business sellers come on the scene like now versus maybe I don't know five or ten years ago, or are you seeing any particular trends? Yeah. So the Exit Planning Institute, which is a partner of ours, says that seventy six percent of business owners plan to exit their business in the next ten years. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a big nut. That's as big as they've ever tracked. Uh, in terms of the market, so so yeah, there's a there is a coming wave. Um, w- one financial advisor called it the ten trillion dollar opportunity. So it's it, yeah, it is a big transfer of wealth. Most people believe it's the largest transfer of private wealth mm-hmm. that's going to take place in the next ten years. So it's a it's a big it's a big trend. It, um, just to, just to interject there, it's also yeah. I I would think if you are thinking about it, that if you know that there is going to be a potential glut of supply of people selling their businesses over the next 10 years and you're not making hay right now and getting your stuff together, like following your advice and saying, listen, if, if, if a lot of people are going to start selling this stuff in the, in the next decade and increasingly so, I better get my stuff right because I'm going to have to compete with a lot of other businesses that are going to be on the market. You bet. You bet. Like I heard today, I was talking to somebody and they were saying the average accounting firm in America is run by a partner with an average age of 58. Mm. So like, what's gonna happen when all those guys turn 65? Like, (laughs) there's gonna be a lot of accounting firms on the market, and to your point, they're going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because there just simply won't be enough buyers to meet the demand of sellers. Yeah, yeah, grade 10 economics. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's that should that that's a definitely concern for business owners today. Flip side is, I think there's a lot of folks out there similar to what you're doing, which is basically, you, you know, increasingly there are a lot of people realizing that the risks associated with starting a business are significant, but buying something established and making it run better mm-hmm. is is something that's a lot less risky. And so I think we're seeing a lot of people, more and more people than I than I sort of have was aware of that are that are are looking at buying a business as their sort of um, career choice. You know, it, it made a lot of sense to me. I've started businesses. I've I, I see I've, I've had businesses succeed. I've had businesses fail. And I do know that um, I don't know if I have the energy anymore to start something from scratch unless I'm mm. so completely interested in it. Uh, a friend of mine who does buy businesses and uh, you know holds them on whether in his portfolio sometimes he resells them. But he said you know. We, um, as consumers, when we want shelter, you know, from, you know, from the elements, we don't usually go to Home Depot and buy boards and hammers and nails and go out and build a house ourselves. We usually find somebody who's built a house. Ideally, it's a house we want to live in. We arrange financing and we purchase that house and we move in. And he gave a couple other examples, but he's like, why is it as, as entrepreneurs, as business owners, you know, ultimately we get into business I mean, you can say to make an impact, whatever, but we get into business to make money and to make a living and to create cash flow so that we can live our lives. He's like, why do we think we have to build it from scratch? Somebody out there has probably done a pretty good job of it. And if you can find a business that fits all of your criteria, such as 
if you know that a business, most businesses fail after five years, then find a business that's been around for five years, has a validated product, a list of customers, et cetera, and then just reverse engineer the math to say, this is how much I need to make. This is the financing I need. Let's go find somebody who's already built it. Let's move into their house and then decorate it the way we want. I was like, yeah. oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I think that the more people that start to adopt that idea as well, they'll, they'll be able to match up with the opportunity of a lot of these people who are retiring and wanting to sell their business. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. The, the word of caution I would have, though, is um, oftentimes the a business it, it's not immediately clear how dependent the company is on its owner. And to go back to your Charlie Munger, like what's the inversion of or mm-hmm. the opposite of 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 what uh, you know buyers look for from a seller's perspective, what you want to ensure is that your business is. Is, is is not dependent on you personally and yeah. and that can be very difficult to measure uh, um, you know but it, it can oftentimes it's easy if, if you know you're the, the the rainmaker for the company right so that's easy to, to pick up and you should be able to figure that out and due diligence but if you're you know if, if the owner is deeply involved in coming up with the product ideas for example that's oftentimes less obvious to a potential acquirer mm-hmm. and so that's an area that that um, you know I think it was Peter Drucker the old kind of now since uh, passed away but but the old management theorist he, he said that as a CEO of a business, you should be focusing 80% of your time on one of two things, sales and marketing or product development. And while I agree with Drucker, if the goal is to be the CEO for life, then yeah, you should be spending the majority of your time on those two things. If however, your goal is to sell your company, you actually have to get those two things into other people's hands. And that team building, right? Yeah, but that can be really hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to because they've been told and they know that it feels right and that it feels like they're in the, the in the kind of zone when they're doing the sales and marketing and they're doing the product development. That feels like they're adding value to their company. And the more they do that, um, you know, they can see quick short-term results. The problem is that the the more dependent it's becoming on them. And so it's almost, it's almost, you do almost the opposite of what you would want to do to build a, 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 you know, a, a short-term successful company is, is, and that's why I think building a valuable company is really so hard. And for those that do it, they get paid so very handsomely, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, I talked to, I, I do a podcast, I interviewed a guy yesterday, he said, like, I, I made enough money for, in selling my company so that, I, he said, I always wanted to make enough money so that my kids would never worry. In the sale of my business, because uh, I was asking him, well, like, what did he sell for? He wouldn't tell me the number. He said, John, I'm not going to tell you the number, but I'm, t- I'm going to tell you that not only do my kids never have to worry, but my kids' kids mm, will never have That's great. And, and it was like, the reason guys get paid so handsomely for for businesses that are that are built well is because they're so rare. Yeah, they're really, truly built so that they're not dependent on the owner. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right on that. You know, this is a, I was having a conversation with another kind of mentor of mine, and one of the things though that he said um, it was kind of just a different perspective of looking at the concept of built to sell, and he goes. He goes, I totally agree with that, but he goes, I want to, I want to challenge you to change your words. He goes, because if you, if you build a company with the, it to sell in mind, you're kind of got one foot out the door already. He goes, build a company that you would want to buy, right? And I was like, ah, that actually kind of makes sense. Because, but 
by the way, the, the two of them are the exact same thing, which is if you were going to buy that company, what, would, what are the things you would want to buy? Well, I'd want to buy one that's well run, that doesn't depend on me to work on it 100 hours a week, that has systems, that has unique, like a monopoly. And I was like, ah, that's actually a really good, you know, a really great, good point. Great, right? yeah. Like build, this, build yeah. a business you would want to buy because if you build that business, then the ability to sell it becomes infinitely more, um, more uh, you know, capable. And, I, and yeah. I, I love that. Another thing that uh, you just reminded me of, there was a book I read years ago, an amazing book, terrible title, because it sounds like a cheesy get-rich-quick scheme, but it's called Millionaire Fast Lane by MJ DeMarco. Have you ever heard of that book? I've seen it, and you know what? I've seen it like in bookshelves, and I thought, oh, man, I, thought, like, I was repulsed by the title. Right. I never so, picked it up so as I'm a gonna, result. I'm going to recommend you read it. And one of the cool things, like he talks about, he talks about one of the best – uh, he, first of all, the, the big paradigm shifting thing is he said, now a lot of you people think that get rich quick doesn't exist, but you're confusing it with its evil cousin, get rich easy. But I'm going to show you how get rich quick does exist. Let's say you build a, you build or buy a business, but let's say you build a business and you spend the next five years working your butt off, hustling, uh, et cetera, and you make a valuable business and you sell that business after five years, five, $10 million, which is rich by anybody's standards. I don't care who you are, right? Um, did you get rich quick? And he goes, don't confuse it with get rich overnight, but most people work 40, 50 years of their life saving for retirement. Mm. You put five years into it and you had an exit that allowed you to now live the rest of your life carefree. He goes, the only way you do that is with an event, like an exit-based event. So understand, get rich quick actually does. You just got to shift your perspective of what quick is. Yeah, oh, that's cool. I'll have, to, I'll have to pick it up. I haven't, I, you know, I haven't read it, but I think that's a really good analogy. The other thing that I think folks, you know, you know I, I wrote a blog post. This is this goes back a couple of years, um, but I, I think it was called "Famous or Rich." Pick, uh, pick ri one. No, <laughs> yeah, no. It was it was it was happy, famous, or rich. Pick one, and 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 happy was being happy uh you know doing your craft mm -hmm. if you're an seo guy doing your seo and really kind of nailing it for clients and getting the attaboys and the backslaps from your clients yeah. you're never going to sell that company but you'll be very well appreciated so happy um uh, famous was the venture back startup, right? Sure. So you want to compete against uh, uh, Instagram. You want to create, you know, the next whatever, mm -hmm. uh, Google, uh, you're going to need a truckload of money. It's going to be venture backed. And in many cases, more often than not, the VC wipes out the owner yep. and the owner's left with nothing. Now, of course there are celebrated examples where that has not happened. But they get but written up in TechCrunch, and then that makes them happy. Yeah, but there are yeah, but there are a lot more examples where CEOs yes. walk away from nothing Absolutely. with a VC. So so you could be famous, but not necessarily rich. And the rich are generally the people who build companies in tiny little sleepy corners of the economy that nobody cares much about. They build a, a three or four million dollar business that's generating twenty percent profit margins. So they're 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 netting you know, 500 grand a year and they sell it for whatever, four or $5 million because they're, it's, it's got great monopoly control. It's a great, that's the recipe for getting rich. I, I love, I love that. Now I'm going to like, I could honestly, John, I could talk to, to you for hours about this topic, but I know that you've got a hard stop here in just a couple minutes. So I want to ask what are, so for my, 
for my listeners out there who are a business owners and are like, yeah, I do need to have an exit in mind someday. And I want to find out what some of the things I need to be doing and resources for. I know you've got a tremendous, uh, is it a scorecard or a value builder system? Yeah. Yeah. So, so go to valuebuilder.com and get your score. We're going to give you a score out of 100 and the average business owner who takes that questionnaire scores a 59 out of a possible 100. Now those average companies are getting offers when they go to sell their business of 3.5 times pre-tax profit. If you over time, build up your value builder score. And we can show you how to do that. There are eight drivers and some tools we've got. If you build your value builder score up to 90 out of a possible 100, those businesses are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit. Yeah, it's only when, double. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first step is to get your score, figure out kind of where you are, what you need to change to, to drive up the value of your company. So you can get it at valuebuilder.com. Perfect. And then for my uh, listeners who are consultants as well, you do license, correct me if, if, if I get this incorrect, but you license some of the tools and intellectual property around the value builder system so that if they're out there working with companies who may be interested in learning how to do this as well, you have opportunities for consultants too, right? Yeah, for sure. So uh, we work with entrepreneurs to help them improve their value. Our business model as a company, the way we make money, we license our platform to what we call certified value builders. We certify, we've got 900 or so uh, certified value builders around the world who are independent advisors. They're, tip, they're typically consultants, business mm -hmm. coaches, M&A professionals. And uh, and yeah, if you're if you're interested in learning more about that, I think the page on our website is, is valuebuildersystem.com slash advisor. Got it. I love it. Well, is there any, are there any nuts you're trying to crack? Is there anything that uh, myself, my listeners can can help you out? Whether it's a person you're trying to meet, a skill you're trying to learn, money you're trying to raise, I, anything. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the offer. I, again, I go back to where we started. We've got this sort of mission to to level the playing field for business owners so um you know uh, you're doing enough by by sort of helping us spread the word and uh well, appreciate I'd like to be on any other podcast i've got a couple of friends with great business podcasts and tremendous reach so i'm happy to make some intros cool okay well, i just hope that all those i just hope that all those business owners out there uh you know with the 50 average of 59 I mean, they better, they better get to you before I get to them. Let's just say that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, at the same time, uh, I'm sure I can take a, a whole bunch of the stuff that you're doing and, and teaching to increase the valuation of, I know, one or two of the businesses that I've got that I'm going to be selling here before hopefully too long. So I'm, I am actually playing both sides of it. Uh, but I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this, John. It's been a real honor to speak to you and hear from the horse's mouth about the way that this stuff is really done. And um, I look forward to getting all the feedback from my listeners. Uh, guys, if you loved this show, do us a favor, uh, share it on social media, tag both John and myself. There'll be links in the show notes. And if you ever have a question you want to ask me, send that email to askbrad at baconwrapbusiness.com. John, once more, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Brad. It's good to be with you. Okay. Guys, tune into the next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.